Machine learning algorithms have existed for decades. But in the last 10 years, several advancements in software and hardware have caused dramatic growth in the viability of applications based on machine learning. Smartphones generate large quantities of data about humans move through the world. Software-as-a-service companies generate data about how these humans interact with businesses. Cheap cloud infrastructure allows for the storage and compute of these high volumes of data. Machine learning frameworks such as Apache Spark, TensorFlow, and PyTorch allow developers to easily train statistical models. These models are deployed back to the smartphones, and they're also used by the software-as-a-service companies. And this improves the ability for humans to move through the world and the utility that humans gain from their business transactions. And as the humans interact more with their computers, it generates more data, which is used to create better models and higher consumer utility. The combination of smartphones, cloud computing, machine learning algorithms, and distributed computing frameworks is often referred to as artificial intelligence. Chris Benson is the host of the podcast Practical AI, and he joins the show to talk about the modern applications of artificial intelligence and the stories that he is covering on Practical AI. On his podcast, Chris talks about everything within the umbrella of AI, from high-level stories to low-level implementation details. Practical AI is part of the Changelog network of podcasts, so you know that it's going to be a high-quality, well-produced show, and I encourage you to check it out. Whether you have any interest in artificial intelligence or not, it's well done. Also, I want to mention that we are hiring. We're hiring both a content writer and an operations lead. Both of these are part-time positions. The content writer position is for somebody who likes to write about software engineering and technical topics. The operations lead is for somebody who likes to learn about how businesses operate and is great at attention to detail. Both of these are part-time positions, working closely with myself and Erica. And if you're interested in working with us, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you. And let's get on with today's show. Chris Benson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thank you very much. You host the Practical AI podcast. I'd like to start by focusing on that term, AI. So there was the term big data, and now that term has basically been supplanted by AI. And I think that there is, in some ways, no change between those two trends. But I think if you look at a technological level, there have been actual technological shifts that have come to the quote-unquote big data area that are significant enough to demand a change in terminology. And, you know, why not choose the term AI? When you compare those two terms, those two eras of technology, what's the tangible difference between them? Well, I guess I can offer my opinion. And the reason I start that way is that if you if you put a room full of people in the AI space, at least together, and ask them, what is AI, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. And almost 
comically, I was actually at a, at a Facebook broadcast that Adobe was doing about a year and a half ago, and there were 12 of us that were being broadcast in a panel, and they asked us all that, and we all had different answers. So that's, we could agree on all sorts of stuff, but a bunch of AI experts could not agree what AI is. So I kind of lead off with that, recognizing that many listeners may not agree with what I'm about to say. In my personal viewpoint, I have a fairly narrow definition of AI, and, and that helps me differentiate what it is from big data. I think of AI as almost a marketing term that evolves over time. And as technologies change over the years and our expectations of those technologies change, then I think the term changes. So the way I personally would define AI is I really think of it right now in 2019 going into into 2020 as synonymous with deep learning. And so, which is implemented as deep neural networks. And so the way I would relate that over to big data is you can use big data in all sorts of different applications and different types of analysis. And the most, and if you're thinking of how, how am I going to operate on big data, you know, you have an entire world of data science that, that you could apply to that big data. And then as a subset of that data science, there's machine learning where you have algorithms that are self-learning that can operate and they kind of figure out what you have to do. And then as a, as a specialty subset of that is deep learning where you're using specifically neural networks. And to my way of thinking, deep learning equals AI today. And if you ask me a little down the line, I may give you a completely different answer. There are some specific technologies that we could look at as hallmarks of this different AI era. We could look at frameworks like TensorFlow. We could just look at the growing volume of data from mobile devices. We could look at the growing accessibility, the growing adoption of the cloud, the drop in prices of the cloud. Describe the technology enablers that are making AI more accessible or practical. Sure. So I think we've really hit an inflection in as technology has evolved where several necessary ingredients have come together to make it possible. And, you know, you've already called out one of those, and that is, you know, cloud computing doesn't necessarily have to be at the cloud, but it's essentially high-performance computing capabilities either in the cloud or that you have on the edge, uh, you know, as a, as a dedicated set of infrastructure. Because there's a lot of money in it these days, uh, there were early early benefits being seen back in the early 2000s on you know, as, as we've come out of the AI winter. And so there's a lot of work on algorithms so that people can apply new techniques. And then finally, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it a few minutes ago is big data. You have tons and tons and tons of data to operate on. And that's really, if you're defining AI as I do as deep learning, uh, you, we see that today's deep neural networks require really massive amounts of data at a, at a level that we just up until recently haven't really thought about in a practical manner. And so, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the National Security Agency has famously says, you know, collect it all and, you know, from some years back. And that's really what led to this wave of innovation that we're seeing in the AI space where you're able to take advantage of, of uh, big data with these incredible algorithms that people are coming up with for various use cases. And we finally have the compute widely available to do that. And, and as a matter of fact, that both 
the algorithms and the tools to use those algorithms. And in many cases, the data itself, depending on what your source is, are, are, are either open source and or free. And so that's really made it accessible to a lot of people in a very short amount of time. When I talk to developers, they generally seem more excited about these kinds of things, like building their own models using TensorFlow, training their own models to do things. There seems to be less excitement about the APIs, like speech recognition APIs, transcription APIs, image recognition APIs. You don't hear as many people talking about the usage of the APIs, which are so much easier to use. It kind of surprises me. Does that surprise you at all, or is that consistent with your experience? Possibly so. I, I think the APIs are are great tools from the various vendors who, who make them available because they've already done the work of the model in their infrastructure. And so they're essentially offering a model as a service to you through that API. And what that does is it relegates it back strictly into the traditional world of software development, you know, where you simply make a cloud API call and you're able to, to get the answers you need. And and that's great if your interest is in strictly on the business and if the, the problem you're trying to solve can be done with someone's existing API. I think the the thing that we're seeing that you're alluding to here uh, among software developers, and that's my background as well. I'm not a data scientist by background. I'm a software developer. And so there has been a rather unusual turn of events as we've gotten into the age of deep learning. And that is that if you looked before the, this recent, the last five, seven years, the rise of this as a, as a field that is becoming so popular, you were really looking at more traditional data science and machine learning algorithms that were out there. And to, to use those, even at a fairly basic level, you had to have a fairly good understanding of how those algorithms worked. And so that created a barrier to entry to their utilization. And so it, it, it remained somewhat specialized in the data science world. And so you know, prior to this modern deep learning moment that we're in, a software developer would work with a data scientist in, in many cases to say, hey, can you create the algorithms or can you show me how to use those and we'll work together to get that to work? Well, something pretty interesting has happened in the deep learning world, and that is that there's the notion of transfer learning in deep neural networks, where because deep neural networks in their layers build upon each other. So, and as a, as a brief aside, which I think is important to understand why this is the case, a deep neural network has a bunch of layers of nodes or neurons that they have relationships with other neurons beside them. And that creates abstractions on what different concepts in the real world is. They're essentially mapping various types of abstractions. And as a simple way of thinking that, if you think of your face as an abstraction, as a concept, and it's made up of the concepts of eyes and concepts of nose and concepts of mouth and such as that, then you're getting these collections of concepts that create something bigger. And then that also might go in with other things to create something even larger, like a human, you know, face, torso, arms, that kind of thing. So the, the neat thing about transfer learning that I was mentioning a moment ago is that it turns out that you can reuse much of a model by only keeping a certain percentage of the existing train layers. So 
you can have a company out there like, you know, maybe one of these leaders like Google or Amazon or Microsoft that are out selling these services and they may have models that you can reuse without all the the intense training needed from scratch. And so not everybody is a research scientist in AI that has to go create a solution from scratch. You can if you can go use somebody else's model and say that works for a lot of what I need. I just need to build a little on top of that then you can gain the, the benefit of transfer learning and utilize it for yourself. So going back to your original question about developers, that's an ability to create new things that APIs are not offering. And it's not that hard or technical. A software developer can, can fairly easily level up to take advantage of that. And that opens an entirely new world of capability that they never had before. How has quote, AI, changed the dynamics of modern warfare? Well, I think we're going through a transitional period right now where you have the Department of Defense here in the United States, along with its vendors in the defense industry. I work for one of those, Lockheed Martin. And as we look at the fact that potential adversaries out there, you know, often people will note Russia and China as potential adversaries out there. And they're saying, hmm, how do we always stay strategically safe, able to provide the national security that's the mission that has been specified, you know, for the Department of Defense? And so, you know, if you have AI as a set of tools out there throughout the world and in, in all industries, Obviously, it's also going to work in it's also going to have applicability in this industry. And as you look at more and more technology basis for national security missions, you're going to see that if you can handle faster and faster issues out there as the as the speed of conflict speed, uh, you know, is constantly increasing. AI can play roles of being able to supplement and interact with humans that are the primary drivers of those missions to give them capabilities or speed up existing capabilities that they've never had before. And so, of course, anybody, just as in any other industry, anybody in the defense industry is going to be saying, how can this particular tool set help us better achieve the mission that we've been assigned? Let's say I make you the... U.S. Director of AI Policy. What would your policy be on facial recognition technology? Well, I think, first of all, the, the person that most closely matches that would be a man by the name of General Shanahan, who is the leader of the Department of Defense's Joint AI Center, which came into existence last year. And those are the kind of questions that they are trying to answer. If you're looking at the capability of machine vision or or any of the other common types of use cases, then you're trying to match up mission requirements that you have and the various tools that you have to implement those missions and saying, how can these different technologies such as convolutional neural networks improve my ability to fulfill a mission? And so that is literally how that is analyzed. And as a strategist at Lockheed Martin, we have a number of people such as myself that are working on these types of questions and trying to find the answers for that, which it's still a work in progress. And for the moment, I'm not going to get out in front of the Department of Defense because that's uh, there's, there's a lot of, of joint effort in that. But we have to look at these technologies and say, 
Where does it make sense, uh, both from a technical standpoint in terms of how it improves mission capability and also from which is of great concern to the public at large and us is the ethics of AI, obviously. And so that is literally something that I am working on uh, at Lockheed Martin. I'm one of the people that, that drive that effort. And eventually, we'll probably be able to talk about that in public. But right now, the work is still being done, and we're still working with DOD and other federal agencies on what we consider to be appropriate uses of those technologies. But let's say I'm not asking you as somebody who's familiar with military technology and military policy. Let's say I'm asking you from more from the the kind of world you want to live in or the kind of United States that you want to live in. So, for example, should I be able to walk into a store and have a security camera monitoring my face and allow me to pay by just walking in and then walking out? Should there be cameras everywhere so that I have a a sense of safety as I walk around and I know that there is a constant scanning of faces for potential miscreants or people who might cause me harm. What about on the consumer level, the population level? Sure. And I think that's I think that's one of the challenges that we have right now. And I think that is a very hard question to answer. I'm certainly open to offering my own personal insight. I think for me, it really comes down to disclosure. Obviously, I wouldn't be in the AI field if I wasn't enthusiastic about the technology, but it also brings about these capabilities that definitely affects things like privacy, perceptions of the world, how we're engaging with those around us. And so I think we're at a moment right now to where if you're going to make those those steps forward into this to use artificial intelligence to fulfill those types of use cases in the consumer space, you need to make sure that your partners and that your customers fully understand that that is part of the engagement that they're going to have with you. And so I think where, where consumer organizations get into trouble is when they they kind of leap ahead of, of where the people that they're serving are expecting them to be. And they don't give those people a chance to opt out or to give feedback saying, that doesn't work for me. And I know, I don't think there is a single answer that works for everybody so far with I'm actually, uh, I'm both enthusiastic personally about AI, and I have great concern working in this field about the potential for privacy to be violated. But I also know people that whether or not they have any interest in AI, they want to maintain strict privacy, and they're trying to figure out how to use even the tools that are out today, where you have uh, social media tools that are able to predict you, your behavior, your likes and dislikes, even better than your own cognizant awareness allows. So, you know, it, it is, it's a fair thing to say that a social media site literally knows more about you than you do in the sense that they have objectively observed certain behaviors and that we are emotional beings and we tend to, to want to think of ourselves in a particular way. And we may not be very honest or observant about how our behavior is leading. So there's, it's such a complex world and 
one of the things I'm always telling people is these are the conversations that we need to be having. Literally, everyone listening to this right now needs to have think their way through what their own positions, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And are you ready as you engage consumer companies to be able to kind of stand up for your own set of beliefs and your own set of interactions at a level that you're comfortable with? And I would argue that probably most people have not taken that very activist step yet. Many of these conversations that I have seem to devolve into a very emotional conversation. So for example, the conversation around, should you have a voice interface in your home? The first response that I almost always get from somebody who I'm talking to about a voice interface and whether or not they should have one is, I don't want that thing. It's listening to me all the time. I'm not interested. The smartphone does the same thing. And, it does. <laughs> and if you bring that up to these people, at least in the examples that I've had, they basically get a cognitive dissonance and they cancel the conversation. They're like, ah, yeah, I just, I don't really want to talk about this. And if they were to zoom in a little bit further, like, first of all, there's no difference. Second of all, if there's any difference, it's that the hardware is more secure and you're not installing random third-party apps onto your smart home device. Furthermore, it actually provides a ton of utility. So as somebody who, who spends so much of their time talking to people about quote-unquote AI, how do you navigate these issues that have become so sensitive to people? So I, I really, I, I do the same thing that you just said, where I try to, to point out the deal, if you will, that people have already signed up for. In a lot of cases, not very thoughtfully, not very cognizant of the implications. You know, I personally carry around an iPhone. It's my personal iPhone. I carry around an iPad, my personal. I also have a work iPhone that I'm assigned. We have our, our laptops. In my house, I have... Google devices, I have Amazon devices, and, and all of these have various listening capabilities. And they're all, they can all be turned on remotely. And it's, it's something that I personally am very, very aware of. I know that in finding my own choice of where to accept the trade-offs between privacy and utility with these devices, you know, you can, in some cases, go in to these settings and decide, you know, I'm, no, you're not, you're not allowed to, to upload data, you know, that might be default setting on, that kind of stuff. And so in our family, we're a little bit thoughtful about the fact that there are many microphones around. And just technically speaking, aside from the legal and regulatory constraints, that a lot is possible. And then when you not only think about the fact that you have all these microphones and all these input devices, cameras around, but that, that data can be used in many different ways. Some of them you might think of very wonderfully and others quite nefarious. You just have to, if you're going to be thoughtful about it, you have to accommodate that realization in your life. And it takes a few brain cycles to go through that, which is probably why most people turn away from it. But that, that is exactly why if you work in, you know, the defense industry or if you work or you're in the military or DOD and you have any sort of classified access, then you literally have to leave all of your electronics 
out and when you go have those kinds of meetings and stuff. And that is why, because if you do have a nefarious actor in there, uh, whether this be in the military space, whether it be in the consumer space, wherever, that technical capability exists. So you should be aware of it. You know, when I think about the government's use of large data or, or quote unquote AI, it seems so nascent. Like, I mean, we could talk about AI, but it is the amount of data that the government has relative to how much use they are making of that data, even in just like non-controversial ways, you know, like, can my, you know, can I get a passport faster or something? Like, you know, can we build roads more efficiently? These kinds of things are not really, I mean, slowly but surely, I'm sure we'll get them. But I think in some ways this mirrors the ways that legacy enterprises are, are are like talking about their AI strategy. But largely, there's almost no difference between, for many large enterprises, there's almost no difference between an AI strategy and just like a data platform strategy. Just getting your data in order, cleaning your data, making very simple regressions based off of that data, are we even at the stage where enterprises can build useful models? Or when can they build useful models? Like, are enterprises just kind of figuring out how to get their data in order? Or are they actually building models that are helping them in transformational ways? I think you're you're getting, it depends on the motivation, obviously, of the people in each organization on how they're approaching it. You know, for-profit businesses are out to make a profit, and I think it would be naive to think that they're going to use data in a way that is not to further that goal. That's why they're collecting it. That's what they're there for, and that, that would include, obviously, you know, all the cloud companies. I think the place where those kind of organizations get into trouble is when the people that they're serving don't have a clear understanding of how that data is going to be used and have not given their consent for data to be used in that way. I think that is different from nonprofits and government agencies because they are there to serve the public and serve or serve the constituencies that they have. And I think that presumably if they have, you know, if a nonprofit is in fact able to secure their, their 501c3 uh, designation from the IRS, it means because they are a, they have been deemed a public charity and therefore the public good. And hopefully they're operating in that manner. But you know, just be aware where those interactions are and specifically don't give consent to use data unless you're fully cognizant of how those organizations are going to be because they can learn about you and your your various behaviors that may influence their for-profit operations. And if you're okay with that, then, you know, go ahead and do that. And I've had to consider that myself, recognizing that by opting in to certain social networks and, you know, search companies that I know they're going to use that data and they're going to mix it with other people and try to get not only views of me as a person, but also larger societal views that can further their business. So it, you really have to, you really have to just recognize whether or not you want to be part of their transformation process. What's the most creative application of generative adversarial networks that you've seen? The most creative, I would say we're still trying to figure that out and, right and now. And by the way, I'm I mean, not talking like creative from like, I got a GANS to write me a 
a movie script or something. I, I just mean like from a technical perspective. Well, I mean, I don't even know that it's it's the technical perspective that's the most interesting. I, it's you know, it is a particular approach to model development, you know, and and we and we may want to define that where you have essentially in in layman's terms, you have one model that's generating possibilities, and you have another model that's kind of discriminating, you know, what's real and what's not, and and that feedback loop lets them together as a team produce better and better content towards whatever that end goal is, and so. You know, there have been some pretty amazing areas in terms of music creation that I've heard, in terms of artwork. You probably are familiar with the fact that there was a group in somewhere in Europe. I don't remember the specifics, but they had created a painting probably about two years ago now, roughly. And they were going to sell it at Christie's Auction House. And I think that roughly they were thinking it might go for something like 10,000 American dollars. It ended up fetching somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million at the end, potentially because it was the first of its type to use GANs in this kind of big art way. I don't know how that would affect pricing going forward, but you know, it was an interesting moment because it was the moment where we first realized with some of these innovations that were literally in the world of art that yes, AI can be creative. Yes, AI can generate things in an artistic sense that we had up till that moment reserved for human intellect and, and thinking that would be the last bastion of where humans would be dominating for some time to come. So now that we understand that AI has a creative ability in the model itself, it creates, you know, where do we want to go with this? There's a lot of ethical issues. You know, what what is valid to create? How does that interoperate with humans? You know, you can be created for simulations. You know, the, the sky is really the limit on the technology. And so I, I know that myself on the Practical AI podcast, my co-host Daniel Whitenack, we are eagerly watching what happens week after week and month after month and kind of calling out some of the more novel things that we see along the way. Okay, but that piece of art, that was not actually like a milestone in like computer creativity. I mean, like computer creativity, you could say, you know, some AutoCAD design or some data visualization, like a really nice line graph. Like there's really not a much of a difference between that and a work of art created by a GANs I'm going to disagree with you right there, and I'll tell you why. I don't even think it's it's what is the actual output itself. I think it's the fact that if you're going to open up a CAD program and work on it, it's still requiring the creative element. You know, that provides tools for you to use to realize this vision that you as an artist may have. But at the end of the day, it's not the CAD software is only enabling this thing that you have in you as an artist. What GANs have done in this concept of, of creating this painting and things that have come subsequent to that with music and with photography and, and everything is that it's no longer arising out of ourselves as human. I, I actually do think not because of the technical output, but because of the source, it was truly a touchstone moment for humans more than AI in that this thing which we always expected to be the last thing to go to computing was there already. <laughs> and, and so we've had to kind of readjust and go, hmm, you know, that that thing that I thought we'd hold in, in reserve is different. It affects humans in a fairly deep way in that way. So I would, if you're looking at it just about the technical output of the art itself, I, I can totally see your point. But 
it has changed what may happen, for instance, in the creative worlds going forward at this point. If you're a marketing agency and you have a client, do you have a staff of designers going forward that are creating the novel things that you're trying to sell a Fortune 500 company in terms of branding and in terms of the various marketing campaigns? Or do you have a bunch of supercomputers that are running you know, thousands of GAN instances and generating ideas, whether they be music or imagery or stories and dialogue, you know, whatever, that you're going to turn around and sell? I think it's actually a really big moment. Just to drill into this a little bit further. So the AutoCAD example, with AutoCAD or with data visualization, like an Excel model, you're often drawing relationships between data points using interpolation. And then you are saying, okay, based off of this set of data points and the interpolative relationship that I have described to you, computer, please extrapolate beyond this model that I have described to you. And then the computer has been able to do that for for a long time. I mean, our interpolation extrapolation has gotten better. The only difference with the GANs stuff is you're saying, hey, here are some works of art, and here are some parameters that I'm going to define that I want you to look at those works of art in terms of. And here's the interpolative relationship I want you to think about between those works of art based on those parameters that I have described to you. Now, please extrapolate from that relationship. And it's really just the same thing. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. But I think it's just iterative. I do agree. It is iterative in one sense. But I think the the thing that distinguishes the two is that in the case of the first, where you're using software as a tool as a human, you're still talking about that the the kernel of that creative vision came from the person. It came from the human. As you look at model-generated art, and it, it doesn't have to be art, by the way. It can be all sorts of different tasks in the world and stuff. Then you're looking at a capability coming about where you didn't have to to start with an artistic talent in the in a human from the origin of that. And as we're looking, as, as you start multiplying this new capability in the compute world out across many industries, that's why we're arriving at this moment now where we have to decide what is this relationship that we're going to have with computing since since in many cases that that nugget of creativity that nugget of insight did not start with a human it started with a model somewhere and you know if you run that out on any given industry and you say well we started you know we're going to proceed down the it may be that instead of building on the shoulders of human giants you may be building on the shoulders of model giants which is why we as as humans need to start rethinking how we interact with AI going forward. What is the right relationship? Because it will change the business models. If you are, if you're a business person out there in one of these these companies that we've that we were just alluding to a few minutes ago with a profit motive, then you have an option between do I use humans for this going forward or do I use models for this going forward or some mix of the two? And if it's a mix 
what is that mix what does that mix look like and what are the moral ethical you know considerations that we need to apply to those as well just as as organizations and citizens of of the world at large so i think we're in a moment of really trying to figure out a lot of the implications where we may be starting small and i think you know, you, you kind of pointed out that that's that evolution, but you also crossed a line in that evolution that's led to a, a whole bunch of, of new things coming in the world before us. Yeah. I mean, whether or not it's iterative, whether or not there is, you know, a, a total adjacency between somebody building an Excel model and defining the parameters in their Excel model versus somebody defining a art generation model whether or not that is a discrete or a continuous relationship between those two paradigms, I do think that whatever watermark we crossed recently, maybe it was, you know, literally what, what you're describing, this, this you know, we, we've crossed some, you know, indefinable moment in computer-generated creativity, or maybe it's just, uh, you know, we could, we could define it in terms of just the amount of applications of interpolation, extrapolation, and quote unquote deep neural networks, and you know these these other these other things that are 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 to one you know from one point of view just iterative, but you know from, you could also say like well yeah we're basically just like we've just iterated beyond vacuum tubes. I mean, but clearly like there have been significant inflection points in the roadmap from uh, vacuum tubes to you know multi-million dollar Christie's art sales from, uh, you know, AI generation. I do think that something really significant has happened recently, and there's just so much going on. And I think that's that's what your your podcast covers. You do have a mix of the of the technical and the the cultural. And I think that's that's important because there's a lot of people who sit between, I mean, everybody experiences the cultural impacts of of AI. Everybody's experiencing this on, on a day-to-day basis. And the technical elements, you know, people have varying degrees of fluency with it. People have varying degrees of desire to attain that fluency. And I think by exploring both of those sides of AI, you are covering a lot of ground. Why the name practical AI? Of all the adjectives that you could have chosen, why practical AI? So we kind of backed our way into that, to be perfectly honest. And it came with the vision on even, you know, wasn't even specific to the podcast, but the vision on what Daniel and I wanted to do in the world in this arena. And that is, there's so much hype around AI you know, you see it, it's not even, it's not, even, you know, once upon a time, it was the kind of thing where when you read technical articles, you know, online or, you know, back when things were still in paper magazines and stuff, it was, you know, you'd see it there. But in the, if you look at the last five years, you go back 10 years ago and it was very rare that you would have AI, you know, in the media, you know, that you would watch, you know, CNN or Fox or whatever your whatever your preference would be and see a regular set of stories. But, you know, we are now in an age where it is just normal, you know, mass media conversation. And with that, there is a lot of uh, hype and there is a lot of marketing that goes with that. And there's a lot of misinformation on what it is at any given point in time. And so 
when Daniel and I, we were already friends and we came from the software development world, actually, where we got to know each other. But in this AI space, we said, you know, we've been learning and we're recognizing that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. Why don't we help ground people? Why don't we help provide a medium where people can come and just see what it really is and what are the real capabilities and what are what are based on those, you know, even without the hype, what is the implication to the world around us and society of those technical advancements that we're seeing? You know, much like this conversation we're having right now, we want to have this conversation with the entire world, you know, if possible. And so we deliberately chose to make it practical in the sense of it's both practical it's very accessible to people. I commonly say, if your grandmother wants to learn about AI, they should listen to our podcast. Because if, you know, we do talk about technical topics, but we we take the time to define the jargon along the way so that anybody can understand it. And in doing that, it makes it productive in their lives, even if they're not an AI person, even if they have some job that that is in their minds very different from AI and they just want to understand what is this thing and how it would affect their lives. So we like to say that we make AI practical, productive and accessible to everyone. And that's why that that very practical connecting you and your life, whatever that life is with this thing that's out there changing the world in a lot of ways, but often not the hyped ways that people are worrying about. All right. We're nearing the end of our time. I got a couple more questions for you. Let's say I give you $2 million cash, no no attachments, except you have to leave your company and you have to start an AI company today. You have to spend at least a million dollars building that company. What would that company be? You know, I honestly, there are so many opportunities. Uh, the real answer, I get people asking me on a regular basis, do I want to go to other organizations uh, or, or create new companies from scratch? I'm in Atlanta and I participate in Atlanta startup community. We actually host a, an AI meetup at one of the, at the Georgia Tech incubator. And so I have that opportunity and I have those conversations. I don't have one that I see. I, I can think of, of so many and I don't know what's right for me right now. But to be perfectly honest, what the kinds of work that we're doing at my current employment, which is Lockheed Martin, is just so freaking cool that I honestly don't want to go do the startup right now. Maybe someday. But right now, I am so busy learning and seeing what's possible at a company that is pretty quiet about its AI stuff because of the industry it's in. But we have so much cool stuff out there that it really puts us in that top tier. And very few people are aware of that, that if I get to a point where I'm not learning anymore and things aren't moving and I don't feel that, then maybe I would consider that. But, you know, there are big problems in the world that AI can be a component to solving. Some of those include medicine and healthcare, which I'm keenly interested in. One of the things that I love doing is animal advocacy, animal rescue type stuff. And I started a nonprofit to do work with AI and other advanced technologies in animal welfare, animal advocacy type issues, because there wasn't the profit motive. So for the moment, staying at Lockheed Martin for the foreseeable future, learning as much as I can, taking my spare time to use these technologies to save animal lives as an animal lover. And then maybe someday if the time is right, I'll look elsewhere. But 
if, if there are just so many opportunities, I, I, I would challenge you. If you're in farming, there are AI capabilities in farming and things that you would never normally associate with AI, using CNNs to look at crops and give them just the right amount. And that's not even new. That's not cutting edge. That's been around for several years. There's really not an industry out there that you can apply this technology to in an incredibly productive way. So it's really pick what your passion is and then say, how can I take this great tool set and utilize it in that way? Last question. What's the difference between podcasting and journalism? That is a very, very good question. (laughs) So I guess it really is, uh, you know, you can podcast and you may or may not be a journalist. And sometimes I feel like an amateur journalist who is podcasting and sometimes I don't. Really depends. Uh, For me, it changes day to day. Not sure what the right definition. I feel like the the journalist, I at least I tend to associate with the kind of the classical news person who is objectively trying to get to the truth of everything and that you can count on their objectivity. I will confess that I don't always do that myself as a podcaster. Maybe I'm not bound to that level of kind of searching for the facts. I think I probably am more the conversationalist and I just like talking to smart people who are doing really cool things. Not sure that would rise to the level of what I think of as journalism, but I know I have a whole lot of fun doing it and hope to continue for some time. Cheers to that. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Been great talking to you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. 